My name is Jeff Cronoweth. I'm the cinematographer of Being the Ricardos, and this is the Go Creative Show. Hello and welcome to the Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers. My name is Ben Consoli, and today we speak with Jeff Cronenweth, Director of Photography for Being the Ricardos. Jeff, welcome to the show. Welcome back to the show. It's great to be back, Ben. Thank you. Now, we've had you on, I think this might be your fourth or even fifth time on the show, so clearly we love having you, and for good reason. <laughs> you do amazing work, and Being the Ricardos is just another in a long line of fantastic films. I just finished it last night. I really, really loved it, and I can't wait to talk to you about it. But before we get there, I just want to mention our brand new sponsor. We're so excited about this, Filmmakers Academy. Master your craft at filmmakersacademy.com. You're going to hear much more about them later in the show. And of course, follow us on your favorite podcast app, as well as Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. All things Go Creative Show at gocreativeshow.com. So, what an iconic story to tell, yeah, man. Jeff. I mean, I Love Lucy, I don't think, I think the biggest takeaway that I took from this movie is that I Love Lucy had 60 million viewers a week on average. Like, that is insane. It's crazy, right? I mean, used to the, as as in as written in Aaron's script. I mean, he talks about that the uh, the utility bills were less uh, for that one uh, half hour each night when uh, people were watching it across the country. It's pretty amazing. And you, the thing that that they don't tell you really is you got to understand like TV was still at its infancy stages. You know, it had only been introduced. Uh, a few years earlier, really rudimentarily, and uh, not everybody had one. You know, the country was half the size it is today or less, and maybe half the people had televisions or less, and you had one in one room of the house, and that was a big deal. So, yeah, that's quite a lot of quite a lot of viewers, quite a lot of the of the market. I don't think people realize what a success was when there was only a few channels. Like, it's, yeah. being a star is so different now. It's almost like the threshold is so much lower because there's the, everything is spread out across so many different outlets. But back in that day, you only had a couple options. Exactly. I mean, today, if I'm correct, I think like if you watch news programs, if they get three million people, that's quite a big deal. And we have 350 million or 320 million people in the country now. So, you know, put the put the numbers together. That's pretty out, un unbelievable, incredible. It certainly is. Now, you've worked with Aaron Sorkin before um, as he was when you were doing um, uh, Social Network. Social Network. Right. So this time, though, he's directing you and he's writing. Exactly. And um, I'd love to talk to you to kind of start with that relationship because... You know, it, it has to be difficult as a writer to also be directing. But as a cinematographer, when you're working with him, what is that chemistry like? What's What are those dynamics like when you have somebody responsible for so much on the directing side? Well, okay, okay let me start at the beginning of that. Yeah, we did social net set. Uh, we did social network together. Uh, David Fincher directed it, of course, and uh, Aaron wrote the script. Aaron was there quite a bit. There was quite a lot of collaboration between the two of them. Uh, I think because Aaron had such a um, a tight uh, kind of structure to what he what he had written and and the facts of it and Fincher and and, and the way that he writes the you know uh, the the quick paced overlapping interactive dialogue between 
cast members, yep. uh, David kept them around, and it was it was great to watch the the, the two of them work together. Um, and so I developed a relationship with with Aaron on that a good friendship and uh, and respect of each other's craft. And then uh, for whatever reasons, Fincher felt very nostalgic at the end of that. And on the last shot of the movie, he left before all the goodbyes and had Aaron direct the last shot, which was an envelope being uh, slid underneath the door. Uh, and uh, so I shot that, and, and Aaron directed it, and that was our first real like uh, director. No way. relationship. So it was quite funny, um, you know, almost 10 years, longer than 10 years later, uh, when he called me and, uh, and you know, it, it was a very funny interview. It was, uh, I had read the script, loved it, knew I wanted to do it, just just based on um, the history of it, the, uh, the, um, a fan of the creativity that they that they brought to it, that Desi brought, that Lucy brought, uh, having watched the show as a kid and having grown up in a kind of an entertainment family, we kind of knew or knew some people all interacting together, you know, throughout the last 50 years, 100 years of the industry. So there was a lot of crossovers there. So it was very exciting for me to get that kind of opportunity. And so even before the call, I, you know, I was hoping that uh, it, the interview went well. It, it wasn't really an interview. It, it was like a, a lot of, uh, hello, what have you been up to? I've been watching your work. I'm a fan. I, you know, both of us saying the same things. Yeah. And, the, and then he simply asked, he goes, uh, look, uh, I just want my, I, uh, this will be my third film, obviously. He had done uh, Molly's Game and Chicago 7. And um, I want uh, I want you to bring what you bring to David's movies. I want my visual storytelling to keep evolving and uh you'll make my christmas if you say yes to do this film you know and so uh i you know faden who shot chicago seven got nominated for that film it's a beautiful film uh but half the movie you know they were handcuffed a little bit and half the movie takes place in a courtroom and a courtroom is is trying at best you know when you're uh, any situation where you're locked into one location for a very long time is challenging and so this this kind of opened the door as much as as uh, as you can um, push somebody into new new uh, horizons you know and so that was kind of the mantra that he gave me going into it and which and then to answer the second part of it, it that that was really wonderful and uh I keep saying this, and it, it, I don't know if it, it, it may be sound confusing to some people, but to me, it makes perfect sense. Aaron, when he structures a script and he writes a, a script, it's so complete. Like he has, at least in his mind, his story is is complete, and so uh, it's a tight little box. And in that box, it it just frees up all of us to bring so much to contribute to it because he's laid it out. There's no guessing. There's no things you're going to discover on the way structurally you know creatively of course and talent wise and performance wise and location wise and all those things will still come but structurally it's so tight that um it just opens the door to what you can bring to it and so uh while we were shooting you know he he handed over a lot of it he hires really talented people to surround him and then he uh, much like a conductor in an orchestra watches each note and then goes you know what i'm not sure about that i can't tell you why i can't really articulate what it is but but this is why i wrote it this is where it's coming from this is the backstory to the word 
that you rarely get when you're on set. So there's, there's, there's more knowledge to the reasoning why he came up with those solutions or why that scene plays out the way it does. And so that brings nuances to it that sometimes get, uh, you know, in the chain of command, uh, and a writer not necessarily being there on set or something lost on the, on the way. And so I found it to be really exciting, uh, a, a lot of responsibility, but, but in a fun way and a challenging way and, 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 a provoking way to keep keep pushing something you know uh, to, to make it exciting i read an article with sorkin talking and i pulled the quote but i can't i i forgot to know where the article was but the quote was that he wanted a cinematographer that, that would stop him from the things he gets comfortable with while directing and being so close to the dialogue i thought there was a really interesting quote it might have been hollywood reporter mm-hmm. but i thought that was a really interesting quote and a little bit of an insight toward what a cinematographer is responsible for on set when working with a director writer does that ring true to you at all that idea of stopping him from doing things that make him comfortable there's 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 a lot in that because I've had opportunities over my career to work with a lot of uh, writer directors and, and each of them, uh, you know, no two people are alike. And so people bring different things to it. But what I would say is a general rule of thumb is if you wrote it, you want to watch the person say it. And, uh, if you're doing a stage play, it's a wonderful thing. You have a, a flat screen, pretty much, you know, a stage and an audience sitting there and they can sit in a chair and talk and it's wonderful for two hours or an hour and a half. Um, but as a, as a film, uh, as an audience member or as someone creating content for an audience, it's your obligation to, to visualize those words and to add emotion and intent and light and drama and make them stronger and put the impact visually there in compositions and staging and blocking and all the things. And so sometimes, uh, not in Aaron's case, cause he's a very clever guy. As you, as you know, <laughs> you had the opportunity to talk to him. He's very funny as well. Um, uh, that you have to keep pushing those boundaries and not letting them get stuck with two people, you know, talking at a table, uh, which would suffice for the, the, the dialogue and, and in all intents and purposes of the story, but doesn't deliver you much impact that, that supports the very words that were written. Does that make sense? It does. It does. Yeah. And I think that's, it's well said. It makes a lot of sense. Um, let's talk about the look of being the Ricardos. You had a bit of a challenge here. I mean, you're it's you're essentially doing a period piece, but it's a show within a show. You know, you have the I Love Lucy parts on set. Um, you also have your your really for the first time in many many decades, maybe forever. Um, the you're giving kind of a a life to Lucy and Ricky as they are in re- you know in real life, not just on the show. Yeah. Um, so you have quite a bit going on. Talk to me about the look that you established for the film. And how you got there? Okay, I, I mean to dissect it even more. There, there's almost five looks with three eras, and and uh, let me define those. There's an overall look of the movie of their daily lives and their daily interactions after they uh, were married, and uh, and and through all the rehearsals and dress rehearsals and pre- prepara- preparations for the uh, upcoming episode of the show. Uh, then there's when they met, which is about 10 to 12 years earlier. There's the what what would appear to be the replication of the I Love Lucy show, but really is just uh, 
Lucille Ball's manifestation of of what the show will be and her cha- overcoming the comedic challenges that that she does, and we use it. You know, Aaron's very clever and not necessarily uh, replicating the I Love Lucy show, but using it as an avenue to show that to show them to remind everybody of the iconic scenes that we all fell in love with, but show uh, Lucy's wit and comedic genius on the way of problem solving to get those done right. And so uh, that's black and white. Uh, and then there's the interviews that were of, you know, some 30, 40 years later of the uh, of the writers all talking about uh, historically what had happened and what they remembered uh, in that one week. You know, so those things were all um, were all fun to construction. And in general, uh, what I pitched to Aaron at the very beginning uh, was um, I thought that it would be. I thought it would be great. Like the color saturation, uh, the richness, and, and and contrast are all something that were really important to for for us to share that era. But that I thought that. Um uh, you know, there's a trend right now to shoot dark for dark. Like, I, I'm not sure what the competition is, but whoever shoots the darkest movie uh, wins something. But uh, I, I, I never, I, I'm all about contrast, and my movies aren't bright. Uh, at least I hope they're not. Um, but I felt like it has to be motivated by the story. And so for these characters in this world, uh, on the lo- I Love Lucy set especially, um, I wanted to have a lot of depth. I wanted you to see and never get lost and not know the environment that they're in and you're in. And so there was lots of points of light. So I said, let's do something where there's a lot of contrast. It's good and rich and bold and all the things because it's not a very light story. It's it's both. There's a lot of humor in it, but there's a lot of emotion in it. Yeah. Um, and then And then separate the characters out by depth of field. So we shoot wide open shoot a large format, shoot large format glass. And so that you still know where they are and you're still aware, which is, you know, for us that that set and the set that everyone's so familiar with the living room of I love Lucy um, is another almost character and layer to every performance that happens there. And so it was always important to us not to lose that. And so um, separate them out and let them uh, be lost in their worlds and their tension and the, the weight of the world that's crashing in amongst them uh, with depth of field and pull them out that way. And so that was kind of like the general, highest rule of everything. I want to talk just a touch more about the depth of field because mm-hmm. the original I Love Lucy had none. Like it was it was yeah. flat. It was old school, you know, sitcom. That's what it was. And even new school sitcom doesn't really have much depth of field. So um so you're you're really establishing kind of a new look and by simply providing that depth of field, it brings you it, it separates it enough from the show, allowing you to really understand who these characters are outside of the show. I, I, right. I, yeah. I, I fell in love with the look overall because I thought there was so much richness in it. Like you really leaned into the warmth, the richness, the softness, and there was beauty in every single shot. There really was. Uh, you're generous, but thank you. Um, yeah, exactly. That was, that was the goal. I mean, when you're on the, on, on the set itself uh, for those flashbacks where Lucy in her mind is, is, is recreating the show, um, this, the set's small. It's not that deep anyway. So the depth of field didn't play that well. Uh, and, and, and in, in those scenes, I chose to use the, the uh, monochrome, the red monochrome, which is a camera dedicated to black and white photography anyways. Oh, okay. Um, and so, uh, there's, a, a, there's, there's a couple of conversations we, we can have right, right in that. Um, 
Well, just to bring people up to speed, just to explain for those mm -hmm. that may not have seen it, there are these periods in the film where Lucy kind of thinks about how to approach a scene. They're trying to Correct. figure out the best way to solve a, a problem. And, and you're sort of seeing what appears to be like, you know, a recreation of the actual show, a scene from the show, but it's really like internally in her mind. So you have a little bit of room there to play with. It's not a full-on recreation of the scene, but it yeah. is in black and white. It is in black and white, and it is our tip of the hat to those shows and an opportunity, you know, a great way, uh, a mechanical way of getting to the show without actually having to do it. It's yeah. never seen on a TV. It's never seen anywhere. Uh, it's only manifested in Lucille Ball's head. And so um, it gets you get away from the trap of having to be exact replications of something that people were attached to. But we even within that, and, and, and there's a few things, segues that we can have here. Um, the black and white, uh, so the black and white in the I Love Lucy show was shot by a cinematographer named Carl Freund. And he was really um, a feature guy. He won an Oscar in 1937 for a film called The Good Earth. He invented a lot of the processes. He was a German expressionist that came over and started working in Hollywood and became very successful and was known for his technical uh, ingenuity. In fact, he invented the uh, incident meter, which is an indirect light meter to read light and expose for film. And uh, Desi, Desi Arnaz reached, you know, Desi was quite the uh, businessman and, and, and clever guy uh, and asked Carl to come and try to solve a couple problems because at the time, most of the shows were done in New York. And unless you lived in the New York area in Manhattan, uh, you didn't get the, that was where you got the live broadcast and a live, uh, live TV and the quality uh, was at the max that you could get in 1952. Everybody else across the country or outside of whatever the broadcast range was of that station uh, got a kinescope, which was where they took a television and aimed a camera at the television and recorded, filmed the television broadcast of what was being done live by whosoever sitcom was being photographed. And then that uh, was made into a thousand prints and sent to every broadcast station across the country. And you watched it, uh, however many days later, uh, broadcast back off this film. And, and it just kept getting worse and worse and worse quality-wise. So, so they would record to tape or to, no, to film. There, there was no they, tape. Yeah, exactly. But they, they would record to, it would get stripped down into basically a television screen. And then the, would you say, call it a kinescope? Is that what you kinescope. called it? Mm -hmm. The kinescope would be filming the screen. Correct. And then that was the, that was the hard copy that got sent to the networks. Correct. Oh, okay. That's that's wild. So, uh, in that, a couple of things. Desi and Lucy didn't want to live in New York. They wanted to live in California, and they didn't want uh, the quality of the. They didn't want anybody seeing it less uh, at a, at a degraded level. They wanted everybody to watch it in the highest uh, possibility, right? And the, the best quality that they could. So they decided to uh, film the show. Uh, and in doing so, they got uh, pushed back from the sponsors and from CBS, and uh, they offered to pay for it themselves because they wanted the quality. However, when they paid for it themselves, they owned it afterwards, and nobody owned their shows afterwards because most live shows evaporated into the ether, yeah. uh, not Ethernet, ether. <laughs> uh, uh, and so, uh, hence, the, the, the birth of syndication. 
because Desi owned them afterwards and then they replayed them later where they hadn't no library yet because they hadn't developed tape to record the live shows yet. So, so in doing this, they got Carl to do it. And one of the things that was one of the mandates for him is, uh, is one, it's a three camera show. They got to shoot it more or less. They shot it live. You know, they think they did it within, uh, I think they did a half hour show under an hour. But they move the cameras a few positions. There's costume changes. You know, all the things that happen. But all, for all intents and purposes, it was a live show. Uh, and w- they wanted to do it with an audience because they felt the performers had better reactions when there was a live audience watching them, you know. Uh, and so he had to light this from a position where you wouldn't block the audience, where you could stage the cameras, where it looked beautiful. And also... All along the process, they built up contrast and the the, the contrast uh, ratios that TVs broadcast at the time were very minimal. And so if you had been on the set uh, while they were doing the show, it would have looked almost even to you. It would have been a two to one contrast ratio, including like aging down uh, newspapers and, and uh, nothing white and all the clothes tea stained, you know, so that everything is all within the same tonalities uh, because as he shot it and then as it got uh, uh, broadcast and then by the time it got to 1952 television sets, it, it gained contrast on the way. And so he, that's the, that's the things that this brilliant guy was dealing with and that's why the show looks like it did. Now, when you do a period piece, you know, you got to look at, uh, at the era and you want to like uh, extract all the things that are close to your heart that are the best parts of it. Uh, but you got to, but, but they did the best they could with what they had in 52. Um, I, people that go see this is an audience that grew up watching Game of Thrones and Dragons in the Sky. And are they going to appreciate the fact that there's nine shadows on the wall and that it's flat lit because it's so authentic? Or am I missing the boat by not like giving them something more to bite onto, but still, but still being respectful of what it was that the show looked like. And I chose the latter. I, I added more contrast. I used a much better camera. Uh, I had higher highlights, um, but it's all still within that world. And that's the kind of thing that you always have to decide when you're doing a period piece. Um, uh, where, where do I want to get that from? And, and so what you do is you go back and you watch the, the shows. You watch I Love Lucy. You watch shows of that era, movies of that era. And then more importantly to me, I think you, you look at uh, your contemporaries, what they've done in that period and what you liked about those projects and what you didn't like about those projects. And for me, it was things like uh, L.A. Confidential uh, uh, that Dante photographed or uh, Carol that Ed Lockman photographed or uh, Peggy Sue Got Married that my father photographed and see like, oh, I like that or no, that didn't work for me. And then, you know, my mind's a little bit different uh, because um, a, a good portion of the film takes place on that stage. And so yeah. I was able to go back and use some of the same light sources that they used. Well, that was something I wanted to discuss with you. And we might as well do it now since we're talking about it is you had an opportunity to film a lot of this film, uh, like actually on you know, what appears to be the set of I Love Lucy. So you right. have access to, because you you simply had to with your props department, you had to be using or at least be seeing mm-hmm. practical lights of the time. So I'm curious, in creating the set and actually filming the set, are you just using old school tungsten, tungstens, you know, as if they were there? Uh, yes and no. Um, we, that, we, you know, the art departments who, who usually are on board before us doing a lot of research were very, had, had a, a plethora of, uh, of photographs from the set itself, from the I Love Lucy set. Uh, 
Plus, uh, you know, I mentioned red. Uh, I use red cameras on this movie. Uh, both the the Red Ranger, which is the 8K camera that we did most of the principal photography with, and then the uh, Red Monochrome, which is uh, a camera dedicated to black and white, uh, which is like what David and uh, Eric Messerschmitt used on Mank. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, Red Studios became De- Red Studios is now what used to be Renmark, which was before that was Desilu, and so they have a lot of the old stuff there. But no uh, way. But I didn't. I didn't need to go there because the art department had taken care of a lot of it. I, we we looked at the photographs. I decided what I wanted to use. I built some stuff because some stuff doesn't exist anymore. They have these funny uh, uh, soft boxes, which is not really the style uh, in the era. But um, it was really uh, like these rectangular soft boxes, which was way before its time, I thought, which were wonderful for me. Um, and then big eye 10Ks and sky pans. And uh, they had uh, footlights on the dollies, you know, which is a little bit odd to me. But yeah. Uh, and then they had eye lights on the cameras themselves, you know, which makes makes sense. But I think that they, you know, dealing with very slow uh, ISO film at the era and, and trying to uh, serve three cameras in three different, not complete directions, but certainly cross covering each other, you kind of had to uh, light everything. And so they did. <laughs> and so we, we were able to use a lot of that and rebuild. We had the same catwalks that they had or the green beds, they call them, that they used. They were the, the same ones that they had on the I Love Lucy set. They've been around oh, that wow. long. And so there was a lot of historical like uh, uh, prizes that came along like that, you know, where we discovered these things. But Essentially, I, you know, I, I, it, it was an era picture. Of, uh, tungsten light was so beautiful, and I utilized that most of the time. There's certain situations where space or intensity, we had to go with LEDs and certain things. Uh, but between HMIs and tungsten light, that was, it's more or less like how we we, we lit it. I just didn't. I just didn't use eleven shadows. <laughs> I had I had uh, I had ten fake lights not doing anything, and one that actually was a key or something. Because I I think you know it was it was funny to to consider that idea, but I think it would get lost and it just wouldn't look good to a modern audience. You know, I think your instincts were clearly right, <laughs> but also it's like this is so far back that I think a lot of the people watching this may not have even seen a single episode of I Love Lucy. Like, you, and I think you're dealing with something that is just, it, it's too far back away where I don't think the reference point is going to be there for most of your audience. Yeah. Um, as well as you, you know, as if you did something in like the 80s or 90s. I I agree with you, but you'd be surprised. You know, my my girlfriend is, is was born in Vietnam and came here 20 years ago and she knows every episode. And my daughter's 24 and worked on the movie with us. And unbeknownst to me, she's seen all of them. So wow. it's it's a crazy thing. I, about, clearly, I'm wrong. Then I mean, well, I know the no, iconic ones, but I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just like people. You can watch say it. I'm wrong. It's fine. <laughs> people people watch it, and and the thing is, you gotta you gotta be careful uh, when you're doing period pieces. This is for everybody, not just this movie. That you're not making a parody of the era, unless yep. that's the point, which which rarely that is, you know. And so those are kind of the things that you gotta check yourself all the time. Then the other other parts of it, you know, the interviews were kind of um, not modern. They're still 30 years ago in the 90s, but she had to have a little bit of a contemporary look to the other stuff from that. And then uh, the thing that was really fun was uh, in the 40s. You know, I love the, the, the 40s were, 
you know, there was a lot going on. There was a war and there was other things happening, but, but they were finding like a star, star power, if you will. They, uh, you know, they would light these actresses very boldly and dramatically with slashes and, and, uh, isolated, uh, uh keys where they would stand and glow, but just their eyes and stuff. And, uh, it's, there's, there, it, it's a word, it's a phrase I made up, I think, but it's, I, I like, like fashion noir, you know, it was very like yeah. bold. And my, uh, grandfather was a still photographer for uh the studios in columbia for the longest and oh, he actually, you come from a lineage jeff my god yeah i know right <laughs> and uh he won an oscar they used to have an oscar category for still photographers because uh they couldn't uh shoot parallel like they do now uh you know they they shoot next to us and shoot whatever we're shooting in yeah. those days with the big flashes and all that they had to direct the actors design the sets and they were like the sole source of uh publicity for for a movie so it was a bit much bigger role. And so those guys, my grandfather's era and his peers like Harrell, if you know Harrell's work, uh, no. very bold. He was probably of that era. He was the most uh, famous, successful still photographer, uh, but very bold. And so I'll put I, it in the show notes. H-U-R-E-L-L? H-U-R-R-E-L. I'm not sure, actually. <laughs> I guess, we'll find Har- it. Harrell. Oh, there it is. Oh, yeah. George Harrell. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, we'll put it in. The, oh, wow. Yes. This is this is like what you think about when you think about the, the 40s, 40s. Right. Yeah. And so so when Lucy, w- when they were first meeting, they meet on a set of a movie they're doing together called Too Many Girls. And she's uh, a beat up hooker. And she walks in on set and then comes back later and they go on their first date. And, and those kind of flashbacks, um, I lit it. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I incorporated some of the things that they did. So it was like a fun opportunity. I couldn't use black and white because we were already doing that for the show to show the time jump so rather than you know off color or something too diffused or any of the techniques that have been used over the years i just changed the style of light quite a bit and uh, of course they're younger in those scenes and and stuff but uh that was really fun actually to do is that your favorite stuff the 40s flashbacks it's it's okay. It's it's it, it's it was probably the most fun to do. But I think some of the prettier stuff is some of uh, Lucy's close-ups uh, are just amazing with Nicole. Oh yeah, and the right light, and you know when she's waiting nervously uh, to find out if the audience is going to accept her at the end of the movie, and she's peering through the kitchen window, oh, kind of so hiding good. backstage. That's one of my favorite shots. And and uh, the, the 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 you know I, what I find is really, and this is a tri- tribute to Aaron's ability and the cast who who suck us in so well is uh every time i've seen it and i've seen it you know doing the di for for doing the color correct for you know 16 days and then all the screenings and stuff i've seen it a lot of times and it's still like emotionally when the when the five of them go outside four of them go outside to say goodbye so they don't know if the show is going to get canceled and they're all kind of like patting each other on the back and kind of mending any wounds that had evolved to the movie. It just gets you every time. And so, yep. There really isn't a throwaway shot in this film. Like you, and there's something about, I think the combination of Aaron's writing and your cinematography that really like respects the audience. And, and you also respect the, um, you know, the, the project and the work that you're doing. And of course the legacy of I love Lucy and all that, but you're, you really are respecting the audience with this film in a way where the writing is not dumbed down, the cinematography is not dumbed down. Nothing is a throwaway. Like you're, you're 
you're appreciating every shot as you watch this. There's beauty in the whole thing. I mentioned it earlier, and honestly, I'm not just like kissing ass here. Um, there's so many points in this movie where a shot hits you and you're like, God damn, that looks good. Right. It, particularly in, um, there was a lot of scenes at their house that yeah. I just like fell in love with. Just everything's landing perfectly. It's warm. Everything's gorgeous. But it's not, it's not just beauty cinematography for beauty's sake, it, right. if that makes any sense. You're it not, does. it doesn't, it never feels like you're trying to do anything. It just always feels like they just landed perfectly where they need to, but it right. never felt forced. And that was something that really stuck out to me when I was watching it. That's, that's um, something that, you know, my father preached to me from a, from early ages that it's about story and supporting the story and not showboating and not getting in the way of the story. Cause it's, it's really easy to shoot a bunch of uh, backlight and silhouettes and people go crazy for that. And people running along mountaintops at sunset, you know, that's, it's beautiful, no doubt about it, but that's easy to do. And it doesn't necessarily support the story, but if you can take, make pretty pictures and, and keep the narrative you know, contained and, and, and structured in a way that it supports everything and not drawing attention to itself, then you've done a really good job. But, um, you know, it, you said something earlier about no bad shots and it just the integrity of it, the smart, smart, uh, respect, or no throwaways. Like res, it's not, respecting it's not, the audience. You yeah. Said. And yes, I, I'll tell you something about, the, you know, every movie's different. Uh, but because of it was, I love Lucy. And because, uh, Everybody uh, loved the script, believed in the script, and because the cast was so fun to watch every day, there's not a person on the crew that wasn't in, in, engaged 100%. It was really interesting, you know. We're doing it during COVID, so everyone had masks and all the testing and all the extra uh, precautions that you have to go through to, to stay shooting. Um, but even like fourth, fifth grips, electrics, it didn't matter. They were all like excited and watching and driven and everybody would talk at lunch uh, and there was no lunch, but it was, uh, uh, you know, afterwards and you would hear the conversations and it was like, you could, there was just a good vibe about it. And I think it starts with Lucy and Desi and the script and the love of the show and then falls to, you know, Aaron's leadership and the work we were all doing. Everybody was really invested in, um, it shows, I think it really does. I want to take a moment and talk about Filmmakers Academy. Um, Shane, there's nobody better to talk about this than you. This is your baby. This is your academy. Of course, you and your wife and a whole bunch of additional mentors and trainers. But can you just give us an overview of what Filmmakers Academy is and, and how it's different? Yeah, I mean, Filmmakers Academy is this online powerful resource that's everything filmmaking. Lydia had this idea very early on in 2009 when I was kind of, kind of, you know, spearheading the whole DSLR revolution. And she's like, Shane, you need to share this knowledge. You need to, you know, spread it out to the world so we can kind of educate filmmakers about all this trailblazing that you've been doing with this small little camera. And I was like, okay. Uh, she's like, I'm going to brand you. You know, we're going to become Hurlbut Visuals and we're going to launch this blog and it's, it's going to just unite the masses. And sure enough, it did. And what we found was all these people had these incredible creative ideas, but they didn't necessarily know how to 
do it, how to go about making movies and commercials and music videos. So we're like, why don't we fill that gap? So now we're starting to bring a whole collection of filmmakers together. Derek Edwards, Derek Johnson, Chris Hare, Jordan Brady, Dave Cole. Uh, now that's going to be all available on the Filmmakers Academy. It's available right now at filmmakersacademy.com. So check it out for yourself, guys. I know you're going to love these things. Filmmakersacademy.com. We've got a question from Instagram here, and you may have answered this a little bit earlier, but um, Connor Harrington wants to know, was there pressure to nail the shots from the original I Love Lucy, uh, blah, I Love Lucy show or just capturing the essence of it? No, I, I think, I mean, uh, any interviews that you've heard Aaron or the cast talk about, uh, the idea was that we were going to do an impression of it, but not an impersonation of it, of, of anything, of them, uh, of the I Love Lucy show. However, uh, the integrity of the actors, uh, they rehearsed it crazy. And uh, they want, you know, that's where they were going to be most closely judged. That's what everybody held closest to your heart. That's why there was the choice of it not actually being the broadcast itself, but a manifestation of the broadcast so that there was some leeway to justify, you know, not being identical matches. But that said, um, for example, uh, probably the most iconic scene is the grape stomping scene, uh, and uh, we we started to, we we started to shoot it. I had uh, three cameras set up, uh, you know, all all coming from the same direction, so the light was was fine. It was pretty broad, and um, we were worried like she would get covered and stain the clothes, and there wouldn't be a chance to do too many takes and all those things. So, and uh, uh, Nicole. We start rolling. Nicole does it. Climbs in. Uh, and mannerisms, looks are identical to the the show. Like scary, identical to the yeah. to, to the real show. And uh, I, about thirty seconds into it, she starts to do starts to move around. And Aaron's like, "Cut! I got it." You know, because he knew in his mind he was only going to use ten to fifteen seconds of it at all. And we did thirty seconds of it. She's like, "Wait a second, hang on." I rehearsed this for four months. I had, there's another four minutes of it. And he's like, Oh, keep rolling, keep rolling. And she kept <laughs> going and she did the whole thing, you know, everything, the speed of the, she starts running and then she starts doing like a farmer's dance and she starts high stepping and going around and around and around. And, um, it's just a credit to how much they studied the, the, the characters that they were playing and how much they rehearsed it. And, uh, you know, Javier and Nicole both um, is amazing. So there was a lot of detail to those scenes. We were really worried about that's what we'd be judged on the most. But I think that they got it really, really well. You know, and the sets were perfect, identical, and the wardrobe was identical, and uh, and uh, my light was in the world, <laughs> not not identical, but we talked about that already. Uh, yeah, it, it, yeah. She her mannerisms, and she really and those black and white scenes. She, I mean, she looks like her regardless and, and throughout the whole film, but in those scenes when her hair is done up the certain way and she's got the oh, yeah. wardrobe on, you're like, God damn, she really looks like Lucille Ball. It's, and it, I was reading this morning, too, that she was even apprehensive about the role to begin with because of how iconic it was. And it was one of those things where it's like, I don't even know if I can do it type of a thing. Well, it's it, again, it's it's surprisingly close to people's hearts. And and uh, you elicit a lot of reactions from people uh 
because they want to see exactly, you know, they cherish it and they want to hold it and they want it to be exactly like it was. The problem, you know, the problem before the movie was ever uh, uh, released was that um, it's not, this movie's not about Lucille Ball, uh, Lucille uh, uh, Ricardo and, and Desi uh, Ricky Ricardo. This is about Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz, and nobody knows them because the, those characters were created for a TV show. Yeah. Now you're seeing real people, and people aren't letting go of what they are familiar with, so they're judging them based on the two characters that were are are not who these people were. Those were the manifestations and the the creative creative like choices they made to to personify those two. You know. Uh, Lucy Ricardo and Desi uh, Ricky Ricardo, and so I, I just want to talk briefly about the gear package. I know you mentioned mm-hmm. you shot on two different red cameras. Mm-hmm. Can you just dive a little bit more into those choices? Um, you know mm-hmm. how you ended up with those choices. I know you're a red guy, regardless, but yep. still, um, you know, lens choices, filtrations, all that kind of stuff. I, I, our audience yeah. would love to know. I'd love to know. Sure. Uh, so we sh- I went with the Red Rangers, which is the was at the time was the newest 8k camera that they had um i i fell in love with that camera on social network i love the way it, it uh interpolates color i love the color science that they bring to it and the and the speed uh and and more resolution um uh different people go about it different ways and and you know you can't really make a mistake nowadays the cameras are so good from all the manufacturers yeah uh but it's just something i know really well and so uh i needed the 8k because i wanted the larger chip to have uh, less depth of field which we we talked about yeah. uh and then the monochrome is the only one that does that you know that's the only dedicated black and white camera available in that large format like that and so that was a a given we did some tests first you know about just reducing the color on the ranger and and going that way but it's not not nearly as rich uh uh as as a camera completely dedicated to light and dark you know and then um uh i am told i'm the first to do this to kind of cross pollinate i use the airy dna glass the 70 mil dna glass that uh that was used on the Joker and uh, some of the Star Wars movies and whatnot. And it's it's a set of lenses that they uh, uh, specifically made to address everybody going back to getting vintage glass or trying to find uh, you know the old anamorphic airy gla- uh, Panavision glass and all the things that had uh, built-in imperfections or aberrations that would add a little magic to images that are getting so pristine now, right? You want to kind of like you want all that technology and you want it uh, to be able to step on it later, uh, but you want to you want to kind of take down some of the sharpness and some of the oversaturation and some of the problems that you had, you know, that stuff's all great for an NFL football game, but it's not so good for telling a, an emotional story about somebody, you know, yeah. you, I think people, the thing that about film that we all love so much is it was something like we feel like we could almost touch it. There was a tactile kind of structure to grain uh, when you sat in that seat and it felt the connection was closer. So we're all striving to get back to that all the time. And so these DNA lenses, um, uh, it was all, they were rehoused and reconstructed of old glass and no two lenses are the same, which is funny and no sets the same. So they all have a little bit of personality you kind of have to manage that as you're going through it. But it seemed like a a great idea to, to, to shoot that era with something, uh, 
uh, of, of, of that world, but, uh, and, and brought all the kind of uh, nuances that we loved in the lenses of the era without actually using old glass because the older, I, I did that on Hitchcock and there's all kinds of, um, coding issues. Like, uh, you get hot windows or use windows as a main source. Um, you can get kind of veiling or you can get some highlights that you don't want. And so, that what didn't I, I? I just struggled with that. I didn't want to do that again. So this seemed like a, a perfect combination of both. And then um, a friend of mine, uh, Steve Meisler, shot uh, um, uh, gosh, Queen's Gambit, and uh, I called him right after I saw it and told him, oh, you know, what a masterful job he did on that thing on that show, and asked him right away, what diffusion did you use? And he used this diffusion called black satin. And so I tested that amongst a few. I, I was always a fan of something called Hollywood Black Magic. Yeah. Uh, and so I just did some tests and seems for this film, uh, the black satins were something that I thought was the best representation of what I wanted to do. And so that was it. That was the, the Airy DNA glass, the Red Ranger camera, the Red Ranger monochrome and black satins. How did that black satin compare to the Hollywood Black Magic? Because I, I, this conversation comes up quite a bit because mm-hmm. the Hollywood Black Magic has been for a long time the go-to and in some ways still is. Yeah. But I've been hearing more and more about the black satin. Um, I liked I liked its softness, uh, what it did to uh, people's faces without adding more color or contrast. You know, that's a problem. Anytime you put anything in front of the lens, you're, you're kind of adding uh, an element, an optical element, and you get different things, you know, and that's obviously that's why, you know, depending on what it is you're seeking, uh, different diffusion does different things and it changes contrast, it changes color, it changes uh, the, the perceived resolution or the how sharp someone's face is and the structure of their face. And so um, for what I wanted to do, which was keep colors but have this slightly muted look to them, uh, uh, um, it just, it worked out. It was a good combination for me. Yeah. I want to talk about, uh, camera motion yeah. and being the Ricardos. Like, yeah. cause I know that was a big, at least based on what I read this morning, um, mm-hmm. it seems as though that was a big discussion between you and Aaron and you wanted to really think about the best way to approach movement in the film. So let's talk about that. How did you approach it? It, it goes back to him wanting, you know, two things. One, uh, supporting the, supporting the script and the story, but creating, uh, you know, not moving the camera for the sake of moving because then there's, you're lacking content, but creating scenes where actors move so that you have to follow them so that you get kind of, you create tension or drama if it's one of those scenes or intimacy if it's that. Uh, and, and because there's so much dialogue that goes on in Aaron, um, in Aaron's scripts, um, I'll tell you just a little side note. Like uh, we started the movie, and I think there was 140 pages in it, and, and, and it wanted to fit in two hours, roughly two hours five minutes. And throughout the uh, the prep and uh, uh, of the movie, um, more pages kept coming until we were like 189 pages. Wow! But the producer was like, "Oh no, it's still two two hours and five minutes." <laughs> like. How does that happen? How do we add 40, 50 more pages? And it's the same. Uh, and then, of course, you know, people talking over top of each other, uh, rapid fire, the, each scene's full of a lot of words. And so it, it does. It's just it's just that energy and that kind of um, uh, chess game that he, he, the verbal chess game that he plays with each character. And so 
um, knowing that, uh, you, you want to create situations where people don't get lost, where you can actually, you know, the camera's not flying around and you're missing the weight of the words or what the meaning of the words are, but you want to keep it interesting and you want to block out scenes where people are not just stuck in chairs and sitting, which is something that we talked about a lot beforehand, making sure that the, you know, the, the cast was alive and it wasn't, you know, we weren't confined or, or didn't feel claustrophobic at all. And so, uh, we would uh, we would just block each sequence and get the cast in and try to figure out wh- wh- where places were comfortable or where they can, you know. Uh, <laughs> one, one scene that I'm particularly fond of, the way it blocked out, was there's a scene where Madeline, one of the writers, has a pri- and Nicole wants a private conversation with her, and they come out of the writer's room office and they go down into a tiny little corridor, right? And, yeah. um and so when we were scouting, uh, we were trying to figure out a place like we knew where the office was going to be and we knew where Jess's office was going to be in this room. Where would they stop? And Aaron wanted it to be a little like they could get their privacy for a minute because it was an intimate conversation. So uh, we looked at all the different places and that that corridor seemed like the perfect place. But that corridor was just a, a flat wall and a fire escape side door there was no light no window and i asked the art department if they could put a window in so that's like one of the places where i used leds because there was only a space this big between that and a fake window uh and so we built the window it looked beautiful that was the source of light and then i asked nicole and and uh uh uh, madeline to play uh to see if they could juxtapose if there was any time in that move when they're walking around where it would be kind of uh, Aaliyah, I used her character name, Aaliyah and Nicole, uh, where they felt like they'd want to like kind of size each other up and switch positions, and they loved the idea, and so they get in there, and it's very confined, and it's kind of hard to get coverage, but we got two cameras in, and they would just kind of do this dance, and they came in and out of light, and half light and silhouette, and half light and back, and it's such a great scene, the words that they're saying to each other and, and whatnot, and so it just worked out, and that was them and us all blocking it together, which could have been very kind of confining rudimentary two shot for the whole time turned into this little dance that that, that really paid off for us. Yeah. I, I'm so glad you mentioned that scene because what, you know, kind of what I was getting at with my line of questioning, as far as how are you approaching camera movement, that scene to me really cemented in the idea that the movement was really more in the blocking than anything else. Yeah. And these dialogue scenes that could otherwise just kind of be bland, um, if you know, they could be shot in a bland way because right. people are just talking, 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 talking. There was this constant feeling that there was movement and momentum, but it wasn't even coming from the camera, which I thought was such a unique way to approach it. And that scene in particular, I think, does a really good job of doing it because of that constantly switching directions. Um, your two characters are changing place all the time. And it, what I guess now we've talked about that. My, my follow-up question to that is when you go into scenes mm-hmm. that is so dialogue heavy, wall-to-wall dialogue, does it change the way you shoot? Because you don't really have the opportunity to have like a big opening shot or like somebody enters the frame and you've got 10 seconds to show this beautiful location. You don't have that. You have wall-to-wall dialogue. How does that change the way you approach a shot or a wow. scene rather? I, I still think you you it it does and it doesn't it depends on specific scenes but 
more times than not, we would we would do a master of some sort, whether whether it's a, a cowboys hips and up or something master. But we still tried to do a master, uh, and then and then uh, blocked it where we'd have we'd be forced to make cuts or forced to move the camera, one one or the other. Um, and, and on the rare occasion, you know, and this happened on social network network as well, especially the opening sequence uh, between uh, Jesse and Rooney. Uh, when they're breaking up in, in, at the restaurant and social network, um, that dialogue happens so fast and so over top of each other that it becomes uh, an editorial nightmare. And it's the few times uh, where uh, you're compelled to shoot two cameras opposing each other, um, you know, two different directions. It's not ideal to light to, yeah. but if you block it out the right way and you have a common source from behind them and you stay on this side of the line, which you you have to do basically, um, you can make it work, and that gives uh, gives the editor and, and the director choices to to take individual takes that will never be the same again and and have things that match and so that happens occasionally and if you know it's going to be one of those scenes you want to find a point where you can get them in that position where that coverage will actually help you out um other than that like we always just try to take each sequence and go how can i add something to this or how can we get in or out of it that allows us you know following somebody in taking someone out uh, something wide to establish it, although there's not that many establishing shots. But, you know, say, like, for example, the table reads, you know, we had an opportunity to introduce the entire set and come up from behind the bleachers and show off. And that those kind of things are nice. Or the reverse, when Desi and Lucy first make their entrance onto that set, big stage elephant doors fly open, the sun comes blasting in, they make this grand entrance. But it supported the story, you know. It wasn't just showing off. It was it was telling the lay of the land. It was letting the audience see like what is this stage? Where are the different doors are? It's going to play later in, in other sequences. So you got to know the geography of this place. And so those all things kind of served us really well. Yeah, uh, and and I I absolutely loved the final shot in the film too. Just that that pull up through the set through like the lighting grid and everything. It's just. It's really, really a great shot, and I, I, I'm curious where that came from. Is that something that was written in the script? Is there something that came from you, or no? That was Aaron's idea. He wanted to let her be little in this world that she created, and and it's it's not working out for her. And this is the only place that she's going to find this perfect little world, and how small she feels in it at that moment. And so uh, the the pullout, you know, we didn't know exactly what it, we talked about doing a cable cam of some sort so that we pulled across all the bleachers and all that, but that involved all them and wasn't really the isolation that, that he was looking for, uh, that, that the way that, uh, it felt like you wanted to leave the two of them and especially her alone. And so we, we did some rehearsals and took some, uh, stills and put them together in previs and, and just, uh, thought that we would pull up through the perms. Um, and then when we ran out, uh, just keep adding until we dissolved into the noise of a television screen. Yeah. Uh, you know, and then as it slowly fades out to black and white to the TV show and then goes to the noise on the television screen. And so we, we used a decelerator rig, you know, like people when they're jumping out of buildings and whatnot, it's a cable and it counters itself and, uh, made some cable rig from the floor up and then slid all the way up and got as high as we could go. And the rest was CG. 
Uh, it's, it's such a cool shot. So, Jeff, I want to talk about the opening scene of Being the Ricardos because you handled it in a really unique way where the characters aren't seen for a couple minutes into the film. You actually almost see them from the waist down. Um, talk to me about that scene and that strategy and how you came to film it in that way. Um, the way it's written was there was four shots and it starts off over the couch and you see uh, Lucy's legs and then you hear them arguing and then uh, the, the shot descriptions were very vague, but there was four of them and he was holding off to kind of introduce them until Winch Walter Winchell says that, uh, Lucy was a communist and America's favorite sweetheart is a, or favorite redhead is a communist or something. And, uh, and then we introduced them because we want, you know, all along Aaron wanted it to be a slow build and, and let the audience slightly get adjusted to it before we launch into Nicole and Javier. Um, and I kept going like, oh my gosh, there's like six pages of dialogue and we have four shots and we don't see them. And, um, and I kept like revisiting and going, creating like 10 different shots, 15 shots, like through the wine glass and obscuring them and reflections off the table and this and that. And, uh, I, I had the art department in a small corner of the stage, plot out that living room with tape and bring the couch in and bring the radio in and went with a finder and tried to block it out. And I kept fighting the way it was written and it was written. It, it dawned on me when I was doing the blocking, like, this is perfect. He's figured it out already. Like, why am I trying to wreck what, what is already there? And what I ended up doing was I can't, you know, he's like, I want four shots. You figure it out. We're not going to get it them until this point. And I just thought as an audience, you'd be like, it's too much time, screen time. And, uh, and so instead, like I took this old radio and I added a mirror to one of the doors so that you could look at the radio and see them reflected back in it. There was a magazine drop and you have to see that, she, that it's, it's Desi with another girl who we find out later is uh, the sponsor's daughter. Uh, and, but you see their bodies <clears throat> and, I, I came up with the, you know, I just, it just, it became crystal clear that the way it was originally conceived was the most dramatic way to present it and don't fight it and let it have that screen time and let it play out and let it be uncomfortable until that moment. And so we just came up with three shots that, you know, designed and then were through reflections and then over them and the magazine falling in the mirror and, and all those things. And I love the way that the film opens because, because you're sort of drawn in a little bit and it's really not that much time. I mean, it's, I know that it probably feels like that when you're looking at the script, but yeah. watching it, you you must now feel that, that that's an appropriate amount of time to sort of draw you in. Plus, it makes you, you're like, it builds up this anticipation to be like, what are they going to look like? <laughs> like, how realistic are they going to look like the actual characters? It, it's it's it, so clever because right away he makes the, you know, he uses the most famous line that we also close on is, uh, Lucy, I'm home. Yeah. You know, and everybody's like, oh, okay, now I know who it is. And, uh, uh, just the tension to the reveal was very, very clever. So well conceived. And that's what I said at the very beginning. It's like, it's structured so tight that you just have to, you know, bring your, your, creative input to that and, and make it better. And that, that was really fun. What I, what I like about it, and maybe it's just getting a little bit too in the weeds. Um, and maybe I'm finding something that isn't there, but there's a B storyline. Well, it's actually kind of an A storyline throughout the whole film about Lucy trying to, um, deal with this situation where Ricky comes home, puts his hands over her eyes, and she's supposed to like 
act as though she doesn't know who he is. And it's right. it's this back and forth between they don't want to make their audience feel stupid um, by pretending that they don't know something like that. And this, it's this constant like, would would she know that it's actually him? And I found that that intro scene was sort of reminiscent of that whole conflict because you're discovering who these people are through their voice and their body motion, and you do kind of know who they are. And there was something about this idea of, do, do, does the audience believe that this is happening? Does this person actually know who I am? There's a lot of those questions in the opening scene, and I, I thought it tied in perfectly with that challenge that she was trying to overcome. Maybe I'm no. overlooking it or overthinking no, no. it. No, you're not. It's a perfect book into it. And it supports her argument, you know, because right at the beginning when, when he says that and we don't even know whose couch it is or who's laying on the couch, you know right away who they are, like yep. right away. And that's what she was saying, like in the 37 other times that he said it <laughs> to great laugh, why wouldn't we do that? And uh, yeah, that's that's funny. And it's funny how he has the the older version of the writers not remembering what the line was. You know, it's like, how could you not remember that line of all lines, right? <laughs> yeah. It's the only line that everybody remembers. So, yeah. It funny. really is. Well, the film is awesome. You guys okay. should definitely check it out. It's on Amazon Prime. So, I mean, you guys could see it right at this very moment. It's called yeah. Being the Ricardos. It looks amazing. The story's great. I really loved it. And Jeff, your work was just awesome on it. So right. thank you so much for coming back. Appreciate it. Thank you. What's next for you? What are you working on? I, you know, I, I shoot commercials. I direct commercials in between uh, long form projects. And uh, my brother and I just finished a couple of things that are coming up. And uh, and then I got a couple of really exciting things right next week and the week after. And then I don't know yet. We'll see. Oh, that's we'll awesome. Waiting for All Aaron right. to write his next script. <laughs> exactly. Well, we'll wait for you to do it, and then you can come back on the show and talk about you it. You know so. I will. Absolutely. <laughs> Love to. Thank you so much, Jeff Cronin with uh, the film is called Being the Ricardos. Check it out right now. Cheers. All right, great. All right, I want to thank Jeff Cronin with for coming back on the show. He was the director of photography for Being the Ricardos, and he's such a great guest, and we love having him here. So thank you so much, Jeff, for being on. Of course, we also want to thank all of you guys for listening to the show and asking your questions and being involved. We really love it, so please let us know what you think of this show. Um, I want to thank Connor Crosby, our producer. You can find him at ignitionvisuals.com, and of course, Dave Siegel from Siegel Sound. He mixes and masters and makes the show sound so good. And our brand new sponsor, Filmmakers Academy. I am so excited to start our relationship with those guys. It's such a great place to go to master your craft. That's their tagline. That's their slogan. But it really is true. Master your craft at filmmakersacademy.com. And you'll be hearing a lot from Shane and the other uh, educators on the website in future episodes. So lots of cool stuff on the way. We're very happy to be working with Filmmakers Academy. Of course, we want to encourage you all to follow us on your favorite podcast app, as well as Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube, where we put the video of each episode. All things Go Creative Show at gocreativeshow.com. And of course, follow me on Instagram at Ben Consoli. You can see what I'm doing behind the scenes of Go Creative Show and then also my production company, BC Media Productions. I want to thank you all for joining us today and we will see you next week on another episode of the Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers. Filmmakers.